are in Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21 is the idea for the day. We'll see uh, how that goes. Uh, you may remember the days when uh, you would get uh, junk mail in your email folders. This may be before uh, the days of uh, having a nice spam marker where you could mark things as spam and never see junk mail again. Typically, those uh, junk mail spam messages would say something about pass this on to five friends or, you know, um, six of your closest loved ones will, you know, uh, break their leg today or something like that. It, it happens. Um, but uh, you may remember back in the 90s, the circulation of the note that if you lick your envelopes, you won't anymore, that a woman was working at a post office in California one day she licked the envelopes and the postage stamps instead of using a sponge, and she got a paper cut on her tongue. That paper cut throughout the day began to get sore and worse and worse. The next day there was a good-sized bump there, and so she would uh, go to the doctor where they didn't quite find anything. But as the days went on, that bump got bigger and bigger and was a lump, and so she went to the doctor again and out crawled a a cockroach out of the lump in her tongue. So uh, the message was passed throughout uh, the United States, probably the world, that says don't lick your stamps or your envelopes because cockroaches are attracted to the glue. They lay their microscopic eggs on them, and you're going to have a face full of, uh, of baby roaches. And uh, I happened to Snopes that today, and I don't think that that's a true story. So don't worry if uh, you've been licking the envelope. Now, John, the revelator, is just about to wrap up the letter of Revelation that goes towards the seven churches, and he's about to roll up the scroll, put it in the nice envelope, and he's going to lick that seal when the angel says, hey, there's cockroaches in that stuff. No, uh, no he says, don't seal up this letter uh, because this is all going to happen very soon. And so, uh, you're going to read that today in our text, this message to John that this is happening imminently. Be ready for it. Don't seal up the book of Revelation. Don't skip the book of Revelation. Don't skip out and miss out on these final pages of the book of the Bible because it's going to happen soon and you need to be ready. The main idea of our text today is that Jesus invites anyone who would hear to turn from their sin, to trust in him as their Lord and as the Savior from their sins, and that they would then eagerly wait for his coming. They would walk faithfully before him until he comes. And so today, if you're tuning in and you've got your volume turned up, if you've got ears today, I encourage you to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to you. Because Jesus wants to be your Savior. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to be you to be a part of the spectacular event of His coming. Now there are two main themes that are dominant as we go through this final portion. And that is that Jesus' coming is imminent. Imminent with an I. Imminent means it could happen at any moment or in moment, okay, imminent. Uh, but not only that, but that there is reliability and authenticity 
to the book of Revelation and to the things that John has seen in the previous 21 chapters. As we look to this wonderful day where we will arrive on eternity's shore, where death will just be a memory and tears will be no more, as we've been a part of the wedding supper of the lamb and the wedding bells ring and we sing out to the groom Jesus how beautiful he is, that causes our heart to jump with excitement and joy. Warren Wearsby stated, heaven is more than a destination It's a motivation. We pray that as you've been getting a glimpse of heaven over the last few weeks, as we've been studying Revelation, that it will motivate you and spur you on to live for Jesus, to love for Jesus, and to go for Jesus, and to tell the world of his love and forgiveness. So let's get into the text today, and let's look at these things. Verse 6, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. So getting right into it today, there's an assurance that the book of Revelation, that everything from chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus, chapters 2 and 3, the specific letters written to those seven churches, chapters 4 and 5, the account of the vision of the throne room of God, chapters 6 through 19, the horrific great tribulation where God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, chapter, uh, the end of chapter 19 where we see the second coming of Jesus that comes right after the marriage supper of the Lamb, We see the millennial reign of Jesus after he vanquishes his foes at the battle of Armageddon. And then he reigns for a thousand years on this earth, essentially restoring a a Garden of Eden type state across the globe where he is the king ruling from Jerusalem, the throne of his relative David, King David, fulfilling those promises to King David, fulfilling the promises to Abraham, and then as he uh, conquers Satan, imprisons Satan in hell for the rest of eternity, he creates a new heaven and a new earth, likely just refreshing the creation that's already here, just purging it with fire and giving it a fresh start where he's created a new heaven, a new earth, a new city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, where righteousness dwells, a cube of a city, 1,500 by 1,500 miles uh, that have been created for the last 2,000 years for those that would love Jesus. And then as we zoomed in last week, you see within that golden city, uh, the Garden of Eden restored or refreshed. We see the river of life coming out of the throne of the Lamb. We see a tree of life with its root system going on either side and in the middle of this river, that this fruity tree gives off a different fruit every month. It's the ultimate forever fruit, the ultimate fruit of the month club. Uh, Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will be no need for a sun or a moon. doesn't mean there's no sun or a moon, but the lamb is there and his light illuminates uh, the city. There's no need for the temple there because the lamb is there dwelling with his people. 
And so it's a glorious thing that does provide motivation for us. But so many people have been critics over the centuries saying this isn't reliable. Uh, Our hearts begin to doubt. We begin to be ignorant of end times theology or eschatology. We begin to say like the wicked servant in Matthew 25, my master delays his coming. But the Lord says here through the lips of an angel, that these words are faithful and true. They're not something of legend or of fairy tales or mythology or some big pipe dream, but they are a sure thing. These words are faithful. They're trustworthy. They're reliable. They're sure. They're true. And in the Greek lexicon, it's actually T-R-U-E in all capitals. It's True, people. Jesus is truthful when he shows us these things. He's being genuine and sincere with us. Back in chapter 19, verse 9, it says, These are the true sayings of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we read that all of the promises of God in him are yes. And they are amen. And so as we read the book of Revelation, don't be afraid to be hooting and hollering out there. Amen. Amen. Yes. Yes. Because the promises of God in Jesus Christ are certainly yes and amen. As sure as the rising of the sun or as night follows day, as sure as death and taxes is the kingdom of God and it will come. It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One preacher through the Greg Laurie ministry said, this is an ironclad guarantee from God himself that everything we've been reading in this book is trustworthy and reliable. And you might say, ah, come on, who says? Well, here's who says. The Lord God of the holy prophets says. And it says there in verse 6 that he sent an angel, his angel, to show his servants, that's you and me, the things which must shortly take place. So these words are divinely sent and angelically delivered. This is the, this is the best post office, postal system, Pony Express that you could ever hope for. It's the Lord speaking it, signed, sealed, and sending an angel to deliver it. Through the prophets, or as the original manuscripts say, the spirits of the prophets speak this out. In Romans chapter 1, verse 2, we see a similar thing that the gospel has been promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 goes on to show us that. That, you know, it's not willy-nilly and whoever wants to write some sort of Bible of their own, you know, you just go ahead and just, you know, you've probably got a good enough heart to go ahead and do that on your own. But Peter tells us that we have a prophetic word that's been confirmed and you would do well to heed it like a light that shines in a dark place as the day dawns and the morning sun rises in your heart or the morning star rises in your heart because we know this first. That no prophecy 
of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It's not, oh, your interpretation, whatever your interpretation, whatever. We can all have different interpretations that are in complete and utter contradiction to the rest of the Scriptures. But it says, no, it's not whatever you want to interpret it as. There's rules of literature and grammar and context to learn so that we can know the Scripture and interpret it rightly. And that Second Peter passage goes on to say that prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along uh, or moved by the Holy Spirit. So John the Revelator, as he was given the book of Revelation, he's a holy man. He's a prophet. He was an apostle. He was who the book of Ephesians says that the church of Christ was built upon the apostles and the prophets. And here we have uh, that he was moved or he was literally carried along. Chapter one of Revelation tells us that he was uh, in the spirit on the Lord's day. And we see multiple times in the book where he's carried along uh, in the Holy Spirit and given these divine revelations. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 tells us where the Bible comes from, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's the Greek word theotnustos, and it means literally breathed out by God. That's where the Bible came from. God breathed it out to holy men who were moved along to write in their own styles and in their own culture, the inspired word of God. And in the revelation case, an angel, his angel brought it to John the Revelator and showed him these incredible visions. Visions of what Revelation 1.1 says, God gave John to show his servants. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Jesus to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And then he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John. So what you've received here is divine revelation from God. Things that must shortly take place, verse 6 of our text today tells us. The word shortly, you may remember from last summer, is the Greek word tacos, which you got to love, right? Who doesn't love tacos, and especially at Taco Bell, fast food, that's the true shortly tacos. Um, tacos or take or tack, tachometer. Um, it speaks of speed, it speaks of soon, and it speaks of quickly. Uh, that we are in those times where Jesus could come back at any moment. As 1 Corinthians 7 says, that I say, brethren, the time is so short, so that from now on, even those who had wives should be as if they didn't have them. We're not living entirely for our wives now, and it goes on to explain that more in the, second, in the 1 Corinthians passage. But the time is short. Surely he is coming quickly. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 say, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. But the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some consider or count slackness, but He's long-suffering toward us, and He's patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we're going to read later in Second Peter, the context of this is that people are saying, ah, he delays his coming. He's not coming for 2,000 years. People have been saying that Jesus is coming. And 
and Peter tells us, man, you know, the Lord, he's not on the same time schedule as you are. You know, he's able to wait from a distance. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's happening. And he knows that there are people on this earth that if he were to come today, they would suffer judgment and the wrath of God. And he's so gracious and so patient to hold off as we evangelists go out and tell people the good news so that less and less people have the wrath of God abiding on them. You know, the idea here of this shortly taking place isn't so much the immediate, like, oh, it's going to happen tomorrow, although that is true, the imminence of the return of Jesus. But it speaks more of when it does happen, it will happen rapidly. Imagine being in a sports car and being driving uh, you know, about 50 yards from the edge of a cliff, running parallel to that cliff, and you're going 200 miles an hour, and you're just able to go alongside that cliff. The cliff is right there. And any minute when you take that turn, boom, you're going to be over the cliff, right? Uh, in the same sense, the coming of Jesus is right there. And when it happens, when the Lord says go, and Jesus goes, it's going to be rapidly, and it's going to happen right away. Verse 7 says, behold, I am coming quickly. Here's that idea. I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So behold, look, see, look, see. Indeed, I will arrive. And when I do, it will be swiftly. In verses 10 in our text, in verse 12 of our text today, and in verse 20, it repeats an affirmation of this, surely, indeed, I am coming quickly. Some, forward, some form of the word come for Jesus coming appears seven different times in this text, or us coming to Jesus one way or the other. It's a major invitation passage. It's an invitation to know Jesus, and there's an invitation for Jesus to come on back. And so blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Chapter 1, verse 3 told us that blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep the things that are written in it for the time is near. There's three things there that the book of Revelation is, there's action for us to take with it. We are to read it, read it out loud, read it to our families, read it to our churches. There's a blessing there. Uh, for us to hear those words is a blessing. And then for us to believe those words, to obey those words, there's a blessing that causes us to be oh so happy. And so here's where we see a Christian should live in anticipation of the return of the king through being ready with the word of God. That we're to let the word dwell daily in our lives. We're to let scripture shape us and guide us. We're to let it do its powerful work as by the Spirit it transforms us into the image of Christ. Dennis Johnson says it well in his commentary in Revelation when he says, Scripture is not a passive cadaver waiting for curious medical students to dissect it in their quest for information. Scripture is a living, double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the triumphant Son of Man and pierces the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It is a hammer that shatters. It is a seed that grows. It is rainfall that never returns to its giver without accomplishing the message on which He sent it. Scripture 
has a job to do in us. And I pray today that the scripture is doing its job in you and that you let it do its work, conforming you to the image of Christ. Moving on. Uh, <clears throat> well, I should say in this keeping of the word of God, Martin Luther said, I would rather obey than work miracles. Or as Vance Havner said, what our Lord said about cross-bearing and obedience is not in fine type. It is in bold print on the face of the contract. God desires us to be obedient to the word and obedient to the book of Revelation. Those of you out there that want to obey, that's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in you. And as Luther said, I'd, I'd rather be obedient to the word of God than be a worker of miracles. Uh, verse um, Eight of our text says, Now I, John, saw and, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now remember, this is all in context of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth being revealed, the new garden in the city of that new Jerusalem. John is seeing some incredible things. I love, you know, Night at the Museum when uh, Ben Stiller, you know, tells, uh, tells the museum guard, you know, that he's seen things. And the guard says, like, what kind of things? And, and he just said, you know, you know, uh, incredible things that John has seen here in Revelation chapter 22. He's seen things and he gets a little overwhelmed, you know. Uh, uh, here he says that he fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, uh, you know, John was always aware of the value of a good eyewitness. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he speaks in depth about the things that he saw in his time with Jesus. He's about being an eyewitness in the gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John. And when he hears these things, and he's an eyewitness to it all, he is overcome, and he falls down and worships, and worships this angel. And in verse 9, the angel says to him, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So this is repetitive of Revelation chapter 19. Just a few chapters ago, the angel shows John something, and it's nearly identical in the writing. The angel does not want to be mistaken for being part of Lucifer's camp, Lucifer the angel that desired worship and praise to go to himself and he was booted out of heaven became satan uh, or the satan the devil and uh and so this angel is an angel of integrity he wants no part of lucifer's tribe as a third of the angels went with lucifer uh, and so he rebukes john and corrects john and just says no 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 don't worship me worship god i'm just a servant i'm just a part of the plan here i'm nothing special Keep the glory going where glory is due. The angel was aware that any worship that does not go to God is idolatry. And idolatry, we'll see in this chapter even, is punished. Now, Lazine wrote an interesting thing, and I'd never really considered, that it's entirely possible that John was simply reminding us of his earlier response to the glory of this vision. You know, we think, what kind of an idiot is John that he would do the same thing just a couple chapters later? Well, he's the same kind of idiot that I am and maybe the same kind of idiot that you are and that we learn obedience. Uh, you know, we're, we're tough nuts to crack sometimes. We're a little bit stubborn. We're a little bit dense. We are, as the hymn says, prone to wander. Oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Uh, and maybe that's the case for John. Maybe he had this, this separate 
uh, situation that happened again. And it's encouraging to those of us that sometimes, man, we just make the same mistakes over and over again. God is merciful in those times as we come back to him for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. But it is possible that he's just reminding us that, man, when this happen, happens, I went down. Uh, so he may be reminding us of what happened to him uh, before. Either way, the angel is quick to point to where worship is due as idolatry and idol worship takes a good thing like an angel and turns it into a God thing, which is idolatry. And that is a bad thing. The Bible forbids the worship of anything or anyone else, including angels, saints, the Virgin Mary, the Pope, or any other created thing. The angel is a servant to even those who would keep the words of this book. Again, that idea of obedience and observing the book of Revelation, guarding it is what the language speaks of, watching over it and obeying it. And he says, man, obey and worship God. Verse 10 of our text, Revelation 22, 10. And the angel said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. So don't seal it up. Don't lick that envelope. Watch out for cockroach eggs. It's been told that the departing division general manager met a last time with his young successor and gave him three envelopes. The, division, the departing division manager said, my predecessor did this for me and I'll pass the tradition on along to you, he said. At the first sign of any trouble in your new job, open up the first envelope. Any further difficulties, open the second envelope. Then if problems continue, open up the third envelope. Good luck. And the departing manager slapped the new guy on the back and walked out the door. The new manager returned to his office and tossed the envelopes in a drawer. Six months later, costs were soaring with the company. Earnings were plummeting. Shaken, the young new manager opened the first envelope that said, blame it all on me. So he did. He blamed it all on the guy that he was replacing. The next day, he held a press conference and the crisis passed. Six months later, sale dropped precipitously. The beleaguered manager opened up the second envelope and it said, reorganize. Good leadership. He held another press conference announcing, announcing that the, the division would be restructured and the crisis passed. A year later, everything went wrong. And once again, the manager was blamed of it all. The harried executive closed his office door, sank into his chair, opened up the third envelope where it said, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> prepare three envelopes. It was the end for the new manager. It's the end for John. The book of Revelation, the time is coming soon don't seal the envelopes. Keep it open. You might say, Rory, you really pushed the envelope with that joke, and that would be true. The envelope always remains stationary. He said to me, do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book. This is inspired utterance. Don't seal it up. That's unlike Daniel in the prophecies of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, three different times, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 12 again, that Daniel is told that the vision of the evening and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision 
for it refers to many days in the future. So Daniel was to seal up his vision because the time hadn't come. There was so much prophecy that had to take place before that was due. And, and it would probably only cause confusion for those that didn't know. Now, as Lazine says, this didn't mean that the book of Daniel was to be locked away somewhere, but rather that his prophecies were to be preserved and kept for the last days. When many of the things that Daniel recorded would be better understood in the light of the end times. Many of Daniel's prophecies had to do with the second coming of Christ who hadn't come yet the first time. So his words needed to be kept for those last days. What the book of Daniel predicted, the book of Revelation proclaims. And so while it was to be sealed, it really was to be kept for the end days in Daniel's case. Now Jesus would refer to the book of Daniel as if everyone around him had already known it and read it. It wasn't to be sealed in the sense that locked away, throw away the key. People should have known the book of Daniel. Um, And it's to be kept for the end times. The book of Revelation is to be kept open for the end times. As it says, for the time is at hand. In other words, this season or this era is near. This goes along with the, the imminence of the return of Jesus, that all of these things are at the door. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, at the end of the verse, it says again that the time is near. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, we read that the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Or as Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and be watchful in your prayers. Back to our text in Revelation 22, verse 11. There's this interesting, controversial, and a bit confusing verse where it says, he who is unjust... Let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So as Ironside says, there's a divine emphasis upon the solemn truth that as a man is found on this coming day, so shall he remain for all eternity. In this world, God is calling men to repent. Here and now, he waits to renew us by divine grace, those who commit themselves to Jesus. But in the eternal world, there will be no power that has not been in exercise here to make the unjust righteous or the filthy clean. So for those who are unjust on that day, you know what? You're going to be unjust forever. Those who are filthy on that day, you've never been cleansed from your sin. You never wanted to be cleansed from your sin. And now it's the end of times. You know what? You're going to remain filthy still. As Revelation 16, 8 uh, tells us that as the bowl of uh, the, the bowl judgments were poured out uh, during the, the ju- uh, bowl judgments, that uh, men were scorched with great heat in verse 9, Revelation 16, 9. They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And the fifth angel pours his bowl out on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist. His kingdom becomes full of darkness. The people gnaw their tongues because of the pain. 
And they don't turn and return to Jesus and get that correction. Like, thanks for the discipline, Lord. Thanks for bringing me near, even with the swat on the butt of these plagues. Uh, no, they begin to blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Or as the psalmist says in 81.12, I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. And so these people of the tribulation time and of the end time, and I pray that this is not said of you that is in rebellion to God. You know what? If you're in rebellion to God now and you don't repent of your sins, you will be in rebellion to God then. But if you're righteous and right with God now because of his grace and what he's done for you through the cross and the resurrection, uh, if you receive his atonement for sins and are made right freely by his grace, then you will be righteous for all of eternity. If you're made holy and pure by his grace and by the power of the gospel, you will be holy for all eternity. Verse 11 is this interesting verse, and it's occasionally misunderstood and misinterpreted. But if you were to read it with just a casual reading, it might sound as though sinners are encouraged to just go on and live as sinners for the rest of your life. And saints are just encouraged to, hey, continue living as saints. Kind of reminds me of when I was a child and when I was acting up, my parents would frequently say to me, just keep it up, mister, and see what happens. (laughs) Do you think that my parents were actually encouraging me to continue acting up when reality was that they were warning me that it was time for reform? As the exalting Jesus in Revelation commentary says, verse 11 affirms that a day is coming when change will no longer be possible. That is true eschatologically, that means in the end times, but it's also true personally. How we respond to the truth of God's word in this life will determine our character and, or rather it will confirm our character and determine our destiny for all eternity. On the negative side of verse 11, the unrighteous will still do evil. All the filthy will forever be filthy. But on the positive note, the righteous will still do right and the holy will still be holy. One's character will be set at this point forever fixed in a final condition and a final disposition. Negatively, those in hell will have no heart and passion for God ever. Positively, those of us in heaven will delight in living after our Lord. Jumping into our text again in verse 12. And behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according uh, to his work. And so again, we have this coming quickly of Jesus. It's repeated. It's repeated. It's going to be repeated again. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, when I do come, my reward is with me. I'm ready to pay. I got my my checkbook out figuratively, and I'm ready to pay wages out. I'm going to give to everyone according to his works. I'm going to pay them back. I'm going to repay them according to their deeds. As Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 through 11 say, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, though. It will be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. 
And so God will come and he will judge in righteousness. He will give out the wages. And yet we know in context of the Bible that there are no good people inherently in and of themselves. So don't pat yourself on the back and go, well, I guess he'll judge me for my season in the Boy Scouts. That was probably the best time that I had. Uh, You know what? Your mouth will be stopped if you try to defend yourself against God's justice. And you will be found a liar because deep in your heart is the kernel of every kind of sin that sends men to hell. And so what you need to do today is instead of coming with pride and all of the good things that you've done, you need to go ahead and just empty out everything you've ever done and come to the throne of God's grace with empty pockets, declaring your spiritual bankruptcy before God, that you are unrighteous, but that he is righteous. And you can receive from him today righteousness from God and forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 says that he will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those by, who by patient continuance in doing good for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. We know that when a man has given his life over to Jesus and let the Spirit of God consume him so that he's given a new heart and a new mind, he begins to work out those good deeds of patient continuance that confirms in his heart that he has been saved by the grace of God. Verse 13 in our text today goes on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is not the first time we've read this title that Jesus gives himself. It's an incredible title. Alpha, Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I am the A and I am the Z and I am everything in between. He says here, I am the beginning and I am the end. I am before creation, I am the creator, and I am the one who will bring about the end of days. He says I'm the beginning and I'm also the end, which often in theology speaks of the purpose of things. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Jesus is that end for man. He is the prize. Jesus says that I am the first And I'm the last. I was before and I am prominent. I am the best and I am the most important. I am the chief. But I'm also the last. I'm also the extreme. I am the bookend. And so this is God's promise to us based on his character that everything he begins, he completes. He he who created paradise on earth we have read will create paradise in heaven. He who came the first time as a humble servant will come again a second time, a conquering king. He who is the lamb of God is also the lion of Judah. He who began a good work in us will also complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. Revelation 1.8 was when, the, when we first heard Jesus say this of himself, that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. I am who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. 
It's reminiscent of the prophet Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4. Who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. The Lord. I, the Lord, am the first. And with the last, I am He. So when Jesus calls Himself the Alpha Omega, He's calling Himself the Lord. He's calling Himself the One who has performed all the mighty, wonderful deeds. Calling even the generations from the beginning. Jesus is God, folks. He's not the Father. He's not the Holy Spirit. That's a form of modalism that was rejected as heresy by the early church fathers. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He's the second person of the Trinity. And the Father affirms the Son. The Son affirms the Father. The Son affirms the Spirit. There is one God who exists in three persons. And that second person is the Alpha and the Omega. In Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord God, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there's no God. So Jesus is saying, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the first, I'm the, I'm the last. He's not talking about being some cool angel that just has bragging rights. No, he's quoting Isaiah saying, I am God, there is no other. In Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O God, uh, O Jacob, rather, and Israel, my called, I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Verse 14 from the scripture of Revelation 22, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. And so we have, again, this blessing to those who obey, who keep the word, who keep the book of Revelation, who not only read it, hear it, but that obey it, who keep it. Not only the book of Revelation, but all of his commandments. Uh, we are going through the children's catechism with our children. They're just good questions to train your children up in knowing um, theology and knowing who God is. Uh, and so we're asking them around the dinner table, you know, um, you know, who made you Tatum? And she says, God, and, okay, Titus, you know, what else did God make? God made all things. Okay. Russell, why did God make you and all things for his own glory? Okay. Um, and as you go on and on, uh, you begin to ask the children, how ought you to love God? How should you love God? It's a way we glorify God and enjoy Him forever by loving Him. So how do you do that? And that's usually Lainey when we go around the table. She gets that question. And since Lainey was a little girl, she used to answer the question this way. By loving Him and, do, uh, and giving Him what He commands. Uh, and we used to chuckle at that. Just give Him what He wants, you know. Uh, but really the, the proper way to answer the question, how ought we to love God Laney now is saying it much more uh, eloquently. By loving him and doing what he commands. So how ought you to glorify God? By loving him. How do you show your love for God? By doing what he commands. Blessed are those who do his commandments. One of the most tangible evidence of someone who has genuine faith in Jesus is an ongoing obedience to the Word of God. As Psalm 112.1 says, Praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, 
who delights greatly in his commandments. We delight greatly in the commands of the Lord. Or as Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, it's all about love and the word of God and keeping the commands. It says, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all of your commandments. John the Revelator, John the writer of the Gospel of John, John the writer of the Epistles would mention these and emphasize these points in his writings. Like when Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or later on in the same chapter, John 14, verse 23 says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our home in him. So loving God equals obeying God. In John chapter 15, verses 10 through 14, we read of abiding in Christ. And how do we abide in Christ? By keeping his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19 says that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God, that is what matters. 1 John chapter 2 is a very important passage concerning this. Where it says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he who abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. And you know, if you're tuning in today and if you're honest with yourself and you let the Lord examine your heart, if you are one who says, I know Jesus, but your life is disobedient to Jesus, regularly, habitually, you're practicing a heart of not wanting to obey him, but to live your own way and be your own master, I fear for you. I fear First John was written just for you, that you would be awakened up to know that loving Jesus means doing what he commands. First John 5 also says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We don't have to roll our eyes and go, oh, i got to obey again today. Because we love him. We're happy to do the things that he knows are right for us. The original manuscript here doesn't just speak of obeying, but in the Greek it says that they wash their robes. They wash their robes. The, those who have been washed by Jesus in his justification continue to wash their robes daily in sanctification and a writer named duval notes that in the first century context this washing of robes referred to a perseverance to faithfulness to jesus and refusing to compromise with the world even in the face of persecution and hardship anyone who walks in obedience and keeping their robes washed it says have the rights to the tree of life they have the right or promised access to the tree of life that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, and Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. Those people who wash their robes can enter through those pearl gates into the gates of the city. But verse 15 tells us today, outside are dogs 
and sorcerers. This isn't a compliment. You know, so many people believe that hell is just a place where you party with your homies. You know, uh, that is so far from the truth. That is completely the opposite of what the scripture tells us. Hell is a place of torment and torture and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the agony never stops. Never stops. And the worst part about it is that he who sustains everything here on the earth, even in our worst of times, will not be present in hell. It will be absolute anguish and torment. And so you will not be hanging out with your homies. You will not be hanging out with your dogs. You know, it's not referring to your homies. Like, outside are the dogs. Well, that's where I want to be. It's also not talking about your beloved pet. Outside is your dog, you know. Uh, It's talking about, in the cultural context of the day, various kinds of impure and malicious people. Uh, Even in the culture of the New Testament, it was a male cult prostitute. It was a heathen. And Paul turns the table and applies it to the Judaizers, calling them dogs in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. And so outside are perverse people, outside are sorcerers. In the Greek, it's pharmakos, which speaks of a drug or a poisoner. Uh, and, and so often when you hear testimonies of people who've done drugs, uh, that they get in trances and they go in spells. And uh, some dear friends of mine have gone through those times where they are part of this sorcery and, and uh, magician through drugs and sexually immoral people. The Greek word pornos speaks of a fornicator. And so those that are involved in sexual immorality today have the good news that they can confess their sins and turn from their sins and receive forgiveness and freedom from their sins of sexual immorality. For those who are murderers and hate their brother and their neighbor Uh, they will be outside of those pearly gates. Idolaters, people that worship images and anything other than God will be outside of the walls of heaven. Whoever loves and practices a lie. Now this is not an exhaustive list of sins that keep someone out of heaven, but merely a representation of people who are characterized by having a very low and lowest of the low moral standards. You can reference in your own time Galatians 5:19 through 21 where the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of the flesh are contrasted or Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 or Revelation chapter 21 just a chapter ago of who will not be in the new Jerusalem in the new heaven in the new earth. In our text today verse 16 kind of a fun transition here where Jesus says I Jesus. So he's talking now I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So it's fun to have a little talking from Jesus here in this final passage. If you're looking in your Bible, uh, that passage is in red. Excuse me, it's in red. Kind of reminded me of the old Brooks and Dunn song, which Neverly is too super theologically sound, but he does say, I raise my hands and I bow my head and I'm finding more and more truth in the words written in red. And uh, then he goes on to sing and I saw the light, I've been baptized. So then he went and he got baptized. But anyways, uh, I'm, I'm teasing, of course. Um, but here we have the words written in red. As Jesus says, I myself am 
authoring this. I'm sending my angel to testify these things. I am the root, which speaks of the basic cause of David. So he says he's the root of David because David sprung from him. Now, the crazy mystery of it all is that he's also the offspring of David and that he sprung from David. He's a descendant of David. He's the son of David. He'll have the throne of the father David over the nation of David. So Jesus created David. So he's the root of David that David sprung from. But David in the humanity gave birth to uh, individuals who would give birth to Mary and even Joseph and this offspring uh, who would be Jesus, uh, having Mary as mother, God the Father as the Father. We read of uh, the throne of Jesus coming out of David in 2 Samuel 7.12 and Isaiah 9.7 and Jeremiah 23.5 and Revelation 5.5. Jesus refers to himself, or rather the elder refers to Jesus as the root of of David. And I love what Revelation says next here when Jesus says, I'm also the bright and morning star. The bright, which speaks of shining and sparkling and glamorous. The early morning star. Now, some of you may be familiar with the early morning star, the bright and morning star. If you rise up early enough in the morning, about some 90 minutes before sunrise, you'll see a bright star in the sky. That morning star signals the imminent arrival of a brand new day. And so in this reference, Jesus reminds us that he is going to usher in a new day and a new era for all eternity. He is the bright and morning star. Just like Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, that we have that prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and that morning star Jesus rises in your heart. Verse 17 of Revelation 22 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Anyone or whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So we just had Jesus speak, letters in red, and now we have the Holy Spirit speak with the bride who is the church. And so if you're a saved individual today, you're a Christian, here's a little reference to you saying, come. Okay, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And today, if you're tuning in and you're not yet a Christian, then please hear one person of this bride say, come. Come today. Come to Jesus. Come. And if you're thirsty and you know that there's something more than just what you've got, more than outside of you, more than just inside yourself, there's something out there that is life uh, and happiness and true joy. I'm telling you, it's in Jesus. And if you would come today, you'll never thirst again. If you would come, you could receive the water of life that Jesus brings. He will quench your thirst. He will bring refreshing to your parched and dry tongue spiritually. And you can receive that water freely. As Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 and 2 says, Ho! Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, it's okay. Come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what's not bread? And why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? That's a great question today. Why are you giving of all of yourself and your time and your energy and your best years and your best resources to temporary things that are going to perish and actually lead you to hell? If you would come today to Jesus, you can drink freely. You don't even have to spend anything. Give him yourself and he will take you and propel you into knowing him and loving him and living for him and having life everlasting. You will delight your soul in abundance. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste him today. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So many great verses that we can speak of referencing this living water. Of course, John chapter 4 is famous for this, and we've referenced it probably every week for the last three or four weeks, that Jesus met the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and he said, woman, give me a drink. She says, how are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? We've never gotten along, our people. And Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, asking for your drink, you would be asking him for living water, and you never thirst again. And so she says, the Lord, show me that water. And Jesus is the one who brings the living water that satisfies your deepest soul's longings because he created you. He created you to know him. He created you with that appetite to drink deeply of him. And if you would come to him today and drink, you will find satisfaction that never fades. You can receive this gift freely because God is a gracious God. He's a giving God. And he gets so much good glory because he's such a giving God. And he saves even me and even you. Charles Spurgeon, in reflecting on both the content and the location of verse 17, wisely says, To my mind, the solemnity of this invitation lies partly in the fact that it is placed at the very end of the Bible and placed there because it is the sum and substance, the aim and objective of the whole Bible. It is like the point of the arrow, and all the rest of the Bible is like the shaft and the feathers on either side of it. We may say of the Scriptures what John said of his Gospel, these are written. All these books that are gathered together in one library called the Bible, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So come to Christ. He says, so as far as you are concerned, this blessed book has missed its purpose unless you've been led by it to come to Christ. It is all in vain that you have a Bible or read your Bible unless you really take the water of life of which it speaks. It's worse than vain, for if it is not a savor of life unto life for you, it shall be a savor of death unto death. Therefore, it seems to me that this is a very solemn invitation because all of the books of the Bible do, in effect, cry to sinners, come to Jesus. And in this fourfold invitation, you have the Spirit and the Bride saying, come, won't you come? And maybe if you're there hearing today, 
Come, the verse says. And those who are thirsty, come. Take the water of life freely. Here we have a warning in verse 18, not to add to or take away from this prophecy. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And so if there's any adding that were to be uh, uh, well added <laughs> to this book, uh, the word add here, it speaks of laying something upon it or placing upon it. If you were to take this Bible that you have here, and, and specifically first context, the book of Revelation, and you were to go ahead and just add some of your own thoughts or weird revelation or some dream that you might have had, you go ahead and add to that, then God will add to you. And the interesting thing is the word add here, it's the same but just a little bit different because this word add that God's doing means he will subject you to attack. So you're just going to go ahead and, and layer some more stuff on this holy book of prophecy that God's given us with your own strange you know, ponderings and ramblings and whatever that you got because you stayed up late one night. You know, you're going to go ahead and add that. Then God is going to subject you to being attacked by the same plagues that we've read about in the book of Revelation. It speaks of judgment. And though some writers have said it's hyperbole, that just speaks of, and you're going to suffer the wrath of God. There's some specific things here that say you're going to get the same plagues upon you if you're going to go ahead and do that, adding to the book. Uh, then we see a bit of play on words here, that adding brings addition, and then verse 19, subtracting brings subtraction. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. So subtracting brings subtraction. If you're just going to go ahead and, and take verses out that you don't like and rip parts of your Bible out or use improper interpretation where you're going to do what uh, some Bible scholars have called use a verse as an evangelical cigarette where you strip it out of its context and take a drag on it and then toss it to the curb because you just used it however you want, then God will subtract you from heaven, essentially, from everlasting life. This is a warning that should cause all of us to quake in our boots and to value the word of God as it's been given to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, the Old Testament Torah says, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, but you may keep the commandments of the word your God, Lord your God, which I command you. Proverbs chapter 30, the wisdom book says, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And you know, it's not that hard to find people who've added or taken away to the book and to be able to call them out as liars because it's false prophecy. Now, <clears throat> This verse does not, of course, mean that believers will never make unintentional errors in judgment or mistakenly interpret Scripture incorrectly or inadequately. The Lord is gracious. He knows that we're but men and we're just endeavoring to do our homework and just interpret this Bible according to the rules of interpretation that have been given us in common uh, in common grammar and literature. 
teaching at a Christian school chapel time once, I was referencing to the Garden of Eden and to the temptation of Satan towards Eve to take and eat the forbidden, and I must have said apple, I must have said referred to the fruit of God as an apple, or the fruit of the tree as an apple, because as I continued to speak about the gospel of Jesus, the grace of God and the plan of God to save us from our sin through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, there was a woman sitting in the midst that sat there scowling at me, shaking her head. It was a bit disconcerting as I continued. After the chapel, the woman came right up to me and said, the Bible doesn't say that the forbidden fruit was an apple. You're adding to the word of God and the judgments of the tribulation will now be upon you. And I was able to kind of sidestep and bob and weave a little bit and say, I wasn't emphatically and authoritatively saying that it was an apple so much as an apple in general speaking of a fruit. I think the Lord's pretty gracious to us in times like that. And I believe that the context of this verse is that the Lord is warning here and, and addressing those who are engaged in deliberate falsification or misinterpretation of Scripture. Those whom Paul denounces as peddlers of the Word of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Lazine said, God will not tolerate anyone who dares to tamper with this book. You can accept it or you can reject it, but you better not change it. It's a warning against any person who intentionally adds to or takes away from the intended meaning. And so we look at certain faiths such as Catholicism and a Pope that speaks, quote, ex cathedra, end quote, or from the chair, where he will add or remove sins to the list of things which God hates, or he will add or remove people to pray to. He will add or remove redeemers or co-redemptresses with Jesus and ways to escape hell through purgatory, donations, the selling of indulgences and prayer candles, creating other roads of salvation rather than justification by grace through faith. Or Mormonism that adds a whole separate volume of direct contradiction laying it on top of the Bible, in which they believe it's an actual replacement of the Bible with its own replacement of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, which is no gospel at all. As Galatians 1.8 says, but even if we are of an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. It's like Paul was calling down through the timeline of history to Joseph Smith saying, when Moroni meets you in the forest and gives you the golden tablets, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses with Charles Russell manipulating the Greek text in its originality to remove passages speaking of the deity of Jesus, the creator of the world, the God and the Savior who is going and worthy to be worshipped, God will add the plagues to these people 
And God will subtract the kingdom of heaven from these people. False prophecies that never come true, replacing the solid, tried and true, proven words of the holy prophet. As John Blanchard put it well, we have no more right to tamper with the scripture than a postman has to edit your mail. So the bottom line is clear. Believers love the word, but unbelievers hate the word. Believers obey the word and unbelievers disobey the word. Believers receive the word and unbelievers reject the word. Wrapping up here in the final couple verses of the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. You think Jesus is trying to get a point apart when he says, behold and surely in front of these phrases? My old biology teacher used to say, hey, if I repeat it, it's going to be on the test. You want to pay attention. And here Jesus says, surely I'm coming quickly. Again, the eminence of Jesus is repeated in this section. You can read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 where he repeatedly says that we are to be those who watch and wait for his return. As James chapter 5 verse 9 says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's like a 101st airborne paratrooper getting ready to dive into battle. And he's waiting for that green light to flicker in the C-47 so that he can jump out and come back to us. The Father, uh, God the Father will give that green light to the Son who himself doesn't know the time. And you doubters, again, would do well to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9-12. through 12 that shows the reason that Jesus has taken so long to do this. He's a God of mercy and grace who doesn't want people to perish in hell. The final verse saying continually, uh, well actually second to the last verse, John has a quick response with enthusiasm saying, Amen. Even so, just as we just sang in our, in our song this morning, even so, come Lord Jesus. Yes indeedy. Come on, Lord, come on home. Take us home to you. In verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We have an apostolic style benediction here in this book. And with it, the entire canon of Scripture comes to a close. Since Jesus personally took this curse on himself, it's so fitting that the New Testament would end with a blessing of his grace upon us so incredible today that the book of revelation and the bible itself are at an end in a read-through it was billy graham who said i've read the last pages of a bible and it's all going to turn out right jesus wins and we rejoice in that truth those of you that used to binge watch the series lost six seasons of lost brought a great disappointment to those who endured through watching all of those episodes. I won't spoiler with you, but those who've read through the books and chapters of the Bible are not left disappointed with its end, eagerly waiting for the coming of Jesus who will bring a fulfillment to all of the heavenly prophecies of this book. God with us, the hope of paradise, and the redeemed with the Redeemer. Final, final thoughts here.
as we have studied eschatology for nearly a year, you know the best way to spot somebody who believes in the imminent return of Jesus? It's not that they can spout off Bible verses that might show a a pre-tribulation rapture. It's not that they're louder than a guy that might be an amillennialist. But rather, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know someone who's, who's waiting for Jesus to come? It's someone who's living a life with holy and godly conduct. It's someone that Peter goes on to say they're looking for and they're hastening the coming day of God because which the heavens will be dissolved. You want to be a true watcher of Jesus, then let that theology produce obedience. John also tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, Now little children abide in Him that when He appears, we may have confidence and may not be ashamed before Him at His coming. There's a worship team can come on up and uh, find their spots. We're going to do something special. We're going to close with a song today. And, uh, and so with that, we know Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming back at any moment. He's coming back quickly and rapidly. And surely there's assurance of this. But we don't want to be ashamed of him and his coming. We want to be living lives of obedience and purity and holiness. As the next chapter of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's speaking of his coming. It's speaking of the rapture. It's speaking of us seeing him face to face. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So who are those that truly are looking for the imminent return of Jesus and the kingdom of God to come? Those that are living holy lives in obedience to Jesus. And so